You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harrell. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I am Jim Harrell, and so glad to be with you once again. And my goodness, uh, we had Allison Angerman uh, several months ago or last year, and uh, Little House on the Prairie. Wow, what a classic series. And then, if you think of another great show that I loved, uh, and I was in college when this was out, so it was all the rage, Twin Peaks. Now, it would be great to get more guests from both of those shows, but what if we had a guest who had been on both of them? That would be neat. Well, it's our lucky day because we have Charlotte Stort on the line. She's known by millions of fans worldwide for her role as a beloved school teacher, Miss Beetle on the iconic TV show Little House on the Prairie, currently broadcast in syndication in more than 100 countries around the world. And as I said, she was and continues to be a part of Twin Peaks. She's set to Freeze a role of Betty Briggs in the new Twin Peaks series to be seen in Showtime in 2017. And throughout the year, she's a featured celebrity in fan events and festivals for both Little House and Twin Peaks, both in the U.S. and abroad. Charlotte Stort, welcome to the program today. Well, Jim, good morning. Glad to be here. Glad to be anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got to tell you, this is really, really uh, an interesting book. And if you're interested in uh, classic TV and Hollywood, uh, I would highly recommend that people check it out. Uh, Little House in the Hollywood Hills is the book, A Bad Girl's Guide to Becoming Miss Beetle, Mary X, and Me. So I, I assume it's not all been sweetness and light, so we're going to talk about some of that, but let's maybe start at the beginning. How did you get started in show business? Oh my gosh, you know what? It was never on my mind. I grew up on a peach ranch in Northern California, Yuba City, and I just, I was never interested in school. I, I didn't pay attention. I was kind of a show-off, you know, and a dreamer. I'm sure a lot of people identify with that. And by the time it got to go to college, I was up a creek. All my friends were going off, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I saw an advertisement in a magazine, Seventeen Magazine, for the Pasadena Playhouse which was the State Theater of California, but it was in L.A. It was in Pasadena. And all of a sudden, my, it rang a bell. Oh, my gosh, Los Angeles? That means Hollywood. I could go to Hollywood, not knowing what the heck I was going to do. But I did. I went away to school, uh, convinced my parents, who at the time were very relieved that I had a plan at all. And I got to the playoffs, and I did fall in love with acting. And I was so lucky... I think it was because I looked about 17 until I was about 29. Mm -hmm. So I got a lot of parts on episodic television, always playing, you know, the teenage, the victim, the, the heiress, the, you know, kidnappy, the whatever it was. So I got a lot of mileage out of that. And I was really lucky. And I'll say that luck has followed me my whole life. I have fallen into circumstances that were unbelievable and, you know, some of them not so good and some of them very good. But I think I was just always ready to say yes. Right. Well, okay, what's the next adventure? And it led me into some fabulous places. I mean, when you look at that era, the, the, the 60s and then the 70s, when you came on Little House, I mean, you had to have rubbed elbows with some incredible people in Hollywood. I mean, just looking at the book, people like Elvis Presley, Jim Morrison, 
Uh, the list goes on and on of the, the different mm-hmm. people that, that, that you interfaced with. Can you tell us about some of those people and, and some of the ones that have really stuck with you through the years? Well, and of course, everybody wants to know about Elvis Presley. I was going to ask. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the fact is, you know, I, I worked with him for two days on a movie called Speedway. And uh, I was married to Tim Considine at the time, who I had. Oh, yeah, Tim Considine. Yeah. Yeah. He was my, my first husband. So I, I did Speedway, and, you know, there's a lot of time waiting between setups and all. We have a lot of downtime. And Elvis was literally the perfect Southern gentleman. He went over, he got me a chair, he sat me down, and then he told me about his mom, Gladys. And it was so sweet. I mean, you could just tell that, you know, he was stricken with her death and told me all about it being in the Army, and they wouldn't let him come home when his mom was dying, and you know, it, it was very kind of personal conversation. I was just sitting there in bewilderment, but he's holding my hand, and that's all I could think about. Holy crap. Elvis Presley is holding my hand. You know, it was one of those circumstances that I just fall into, and he, he just couldn't have been nicer. I will cherish that memory. And, oh, gosh, I just, I was lucky to... I worked with Gene Kelly, who was a director um, in a movie with Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda. Not that that I had a big part. I was never a headliner. I was never a star. But I worked a lot. And I worked with a lot of wonderful people. And some of them became very good friends. Some of them became lovers. You know, I cherish my time, you know, back in then. I'm 75 years old now. And I just got remarried. So life is still good but I have a lot of great memories. When you look at some of those classic actors, um, Mm -hmm. who's one or two, you mentioned Jimmy Stewart, Henry Fonda, my goodness, you can't get any bigger than people like that. But who was maybe one or two people who really stood out like the professionals, professional, like the, the professional I would want to be not, not saying that you aren't and and weren't professional, but the person I would want to be when I grew up, Uh, who really stood out as like, my gosh, now that's, that's a legend. And not only in name, but they, they lived up to it. Yeah. Well, of course, Michael Landon. You know, Michael Landon uh, was everything for Little House on the Prairie. He he was a producer, the director, sure. the star. He wrote a lot of the stories. He was, you know, the consummate professional, as well as one of the funniest and fun people to be around. I do cherish that four years that I worked with him. And I think anybody else who, if you talk to who was on the show would follow up with the same thing. He just made going to work a joy. And I loved working with those kids. I mean, Melissa Gilbert, Melissa Sue Anderson, they were very professional, you know, on time, knew their lines, were, and still were kids. You know, I just, yeah, I, I cherish my friendships. And Allison, you mentioned Allison Arngram, who played Nellie the Bad Girl right. on Little House on the Prairie. Allison and I, all these years later, are best friends. She's the one that encouraged me to write my book because, of course, she wrote her book sure. first, Memoirs of a Prairie Bed. Yes, I love that. She was on the show and we talked about that. Yeah, she kept encouraging me. And we travel together quite a bit. In fact, Monday, I'll fly to France and I'll see Allison there. We're going for an event in uh, the southern part of France where you mentioned we're in over 100 countries, France being one of the more popular ones. But Oh, gosh, you know, the, uh, some of the people that I, I met, Rock Hudson, I was doing Millen and Wife, and I didn't have any scenes with him, but I was on the set. He was charming. You know, once in a while, 
why do men always get me chairs? You know, he <laughs> went over and <laughs> got me a chair and a cup of coffee, you know. I just uh, admired, you know, to, how kind he was you know, to someone who he would probably never see again. You know, it was very sweet. Jimmy Stewart. Oh, my God. And once again, I didn't have a big part, but he treated me so well. And um, But I have a funny story to tell you about Henry Fonda. Yeah. Oh, great. I would love to hear that. <laughs> I really, I didn't work with Henry Fonda except in very briefly. But at the big cast party, Gene Kelly directed this movie. And Gene, uh, once again, you know, here's a classic guy. I actually asked him if he would dance with me. on. We were going to lunch one day, walking up the street in Hollywood. And I said... You know, I learned this step. It's called the scissor step. Would you do it with me? And he was like, yeah. And we danced up for most Oh, that is so neat. But Henry Fonda, at the big cast party, it was, you know, everybody was there. Uh, You know, maybe 50 extras that were there and all the cast and all. Stupid me. I'm in my 20s. What do I know? I walk up to him and I said, Mr. Fonda, can I speak to you for a minute? And he said, sure. And I said, do you have a joint? (laughs) (laughs) he said i think you have the wrong fund that's exactly what i was thinking i think you probably have better luck with uh, uh, peter or gene i'm guessing oh my god (laughs) you know naive am i naive or what that's funny that's a great story i managed to stumble into a lot of funny incidents but you know i i had a 50-year career oh david lynch you know, um, I, I worked with him when he was a student at the American Film Institute. I did his first film, one of his first films, called uh, Eraserhead. Of course. It won the L.A. Film Festival and kicked off his feature film career. And he's been kind enough to include me since then in both versions of Twin Peaks, the, the one that was in 1991, 1991 and just last year, worked with him again. I can't tell you anything about it because I'm under contract. Of course. But I just remember him as being so young and so, you know, uh, energetic. And he had such vision. And I didn't understand it all. Now, I have a question about David Lynch. Now, genius. And I love his work. I mean, you look at things like Twin Peaks and you said Eraserhead and Blue Velvet and the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. But you get the sense that this is a weird guy. Is it just where maybe his creations are weird and he's just like a normal guy or is he a weird guy? And I don't mean that in a bad way because you can be weird and good too. I totally get what you're saying and I get asked about that all the time. When I met David, my roommate was a uh, volunteer at the American Film Institute and she came home one day and she said, I'm working on this film uh, with this young student and he needs an actress to play in it. And I told him my roommate was an actress, so I've invited him to dinner. And that's how I met David Lynch. He came to dinner and told me about this project, which I did not understand at all. But I always did student films. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's important to, you know, give them professional actors to work with if they're going to, you know, learn their craft. So I, of course, said yes. And thinking, oh, well, I'll just toss this off in, you know, three or four days because that's what student films did. Right. You know, they were 20 minutes long and you never saw them again. Four years later... I was still working on Razorhead. That's funny. <laughs> While I was doing Little House on the Prairie and The Waltons, I was working at night on a Razorhead and then running over to Paramount or Warner Brothers in the daytime. And, you know, David and I became dear friends through the years. I'm so proud of him. In fact, you know, when, uh, I don't know if you remember all the big kerfuffle with Showtime when it yes. first announced that David Lynch was doing Twin Peaks, you know, the, the third season. Yep. 
25 years later. And then suddenly it said, no, no, you know, he wants too much money for his effects and his sets and his everything. And the whole cast got together and said, well, you know, if David Lynch isn't doing it, we're not doing it. So they were going to have to find a whole new cast for Twin Peaks. Which would have never worked. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) And it worked. And we had a great time. It was so good to be back. Just so good. And recently I was up in uh, North Bend, Washington, in Snoqualmie, for the 24th film festival for Twin Peaks. It wasn't a film festival. It was called a festival, Twin Peaks, which had about 350 fans who come every single year. And it's like it's like a camp, you know? <laughs> it's like day camp. All of a sudden I feel like having uh, some coffee and some donuts. But anyway. Yeah, I'm not to get into that, but uh, no, I love that show, and I'm really looking forward to that uh, that revival when it comes out next year. Now, going back to Little House on the Prairie, and uh, I, I believe you mentioned this in the book, and we've had Judy Norton from the Waltons on. Why did Little House in the Waltons work at that particular time? And you can even talk about some of the differences in the shows, but but why do you think that kind of uh, approach worked? in the early mid seventies. Why, why do you think it worked? Well, I think for one thing, and, and it works today too. The reason they are still on the air, the reason people still watch little house on the prairie and the Walton is God, isn't there enough horrible things going on in the world? We want, we, we look back and say, oh, if we just had mom and pa, you know, back on the farm and how peaceful it was, even though they had to work very, very, very hard it's a fantasy time, basically, but it reflects a time, you know, when we didn't have all these horrible things going on. And who doesn't wish to have Pa for their dad or Ma for their mother or, or Grandpa Walton, you know, walking around and philosophizing and everything? I think the reason it's really popular today is because the state of the world, if we could just sit down as a family, watch something together that's good and wholesome, and honest, and maybe solves or presents problems we have in our own lives every day. At least that's what I hear back from fans. I wish I had a teacher like Miss Beetle. I wish my mom was more like, you know, Mrs. Walton or whatever it is. We wish for us with a, for a sweeter, you know, gentler time. And I don't know if we're ever going to get it. Yeah, I don't know if we are either. I I will say this, for example, Waltons. I'll give an example about the Waltons. My mom loved that show. My mom has passed since. I'm in my mid-40s, so I was a little kid when Mm -hmm. it was on, but I remember, and she never missed it. But the thing about my mom is she, we lived in the city, but she came from a rural background. And I think for Mm -hmm. so many Americans at that time, there were a lot of people who had moved maybe from the south to the north or maybe a more rural place to more of the big city. And I think in a way Uh it was kind of like a weekly homecoming. It may not have been exactly like their town, but much like Andy Griffith did, you know, a decade before. um, This idea that you can, that little town is like mine, or there's a lot of similar, you know, it kind of drew something in that people could relate to, particularly people who had migrated from those uh, uh, rural to urban areas. And you're talking about me. I grew up on a peach ranch in Yuba City, and then I was living in Hollywood. I enjoyed being back in that town. I remember the first day I was on the uh, the exterior set of Little House on the Prairie. It was out in Simi Valley, where they built the whole town of Walnut Grove. My first day on the set, in my costume, it's my wig and my bonnet and all of that, my boots. 
I'm walking over the bridge into Walnut Grove, and it was like, oh, man, I could live here. This is really good. You know, and then back into Hollywood, you know, with traffic and God knows what else. But, yeah, I think I think a lot of us wish to escape into a gentler, sweeter time. Now, kind of a contrast to the role of a school marm, there's certainly mm-hmm. a period, and you even talk about in the book, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, which sounds like yeah. at the beginning – it was a lot of fun, and then things not turned not into so much fun, and so much so that it, it threatened your life. So tell us about the fun part and maybe the, the not-so-fun part. I'll tell you. You know, in the early 70s, it was, you know, of course, everybody was smoking marijuana. It was just, you know, that's why I could go up to Henry Fonda and say, you got a joint, because usually everybody did, um, <laughs> even though that was a stupid thing to do. <laughs> um, there was a lot of grass. There was a lot of cocaine especially in the 70s, early 70s, a lot of you could, there wasn't a place you could go that you wouldn't run into five or six people who would say, hey, you want a tote or you want, you know, whatever. And it was very gentle and uh, I want to call it harmless then. But I did have, um, I did drink too much. I know that. I I came from a family of, of alcoholics, basically. And I can say that, you know, in all honesty, my father died of alcoholism. The rest of my family is sober now. They said because of me, <laughs> thank God. But I did drink too much in college. I ruined my marriage to Tim Considine because there was a day when he says, you know, I think we're drinking too much. We should stop. Well, I thought that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. So he quit and I didn't. And I went on to hang out with friends who drank like I did. And our marriage broke up. And, and I totally take responsibility for that. And Tim and I are good friends. Uh, this day. Um, in fact, he took the picture that's on the back of my book. So we're, we're still very good friends. However, after Little House on the Prairie, I found myself with more money than I had ever made before. You know, after four years on the show, I had a business manager who was taking care of everything. Mm-hmm. I had a house in the Hollywood Hills, as noted in the cover of my book. And I had a lot of time on my hands. So once Little House was over, I did spend a lot of time, you know, pursuing my love of alcohol and cocaine. I married again to a man who liked to do like to live like I did, mm-hmm. you know, do coke, do drink alcohol and watch TV and do nothing else. You know, obviously that marriage broke up, but I was left with uh, my business manager. I, I uh, had introduced him to cocaine as well because we had to maneuver my, my money around to, you know, figure out how to get money to buy this drug. So he would fiddle with the with the statements and all of that, everything you have to do, you know, to come up with enough money. And what happened was he got addicted to cocaine. He ultimately died. All my money was gone, which happened almost overnight. He had not been paying my bills or my mortgage or anything else. He had been putting it up his nose. And I was homeless. My money was gone, my house was gone, and I was in a very, very bad state. Physically, I was drinking more. I wasn't doing cocaine anymore because I couldn't afford it, but I was drinking nonstop. My friend Jack Nance, who I did Eraserhead with and ultimately was with on Twin Peaks, offered me a place to stay in his apartment in a building I used to own. I had wow. lost that as well. So here I am, you know, camping out at Jack's house. And I, it finally got to the point where I was so physically ill that I called my doctor 
And for the first time in my life, I said, I think I have a problem with alcohol. And he gave me the name of a recovery center, which I went into the next day. Of course, I didn't go into it that day because I had to finish the little uh, half pint of vodka that I had in my my old apartment (laughs) and come up with $200 to get in. Went around borrowing money that day. And the next day, I went into the New Beginnings Program, Century City Hospital. And that was in 1984. And thank God, because, you know, I would not have survived. And that's why my sister and brother say it's because of me that they're sober, because I got sober first. (laughs) Well, we talked about a couple of people earlier who didn't make it. Elvis, uh, and and most people pretty much accepted that that the prescription drugs uh, played a big part in his death. And of course, Jim Morrison and Jim Jim Morrison, uh, who... who Well, Jim Morrison didn't die of drugs. Jim Morrison, he never, uh, that I ever saw, and I, and I, I didn't know him that long. I mean, he died at, what, 27? Very young, yes. Yeah, very young. But um, he, I never saw Jim do drugs. He drank a lot, granted. But I, it's my opinion, and, I, and I'm not a professional, but Jim had rheumatic fever as a child. He had mm-hmm. an enlarged heart. And you could see when he drank that his face would turn red. I mean, really oh like he had extreme high blood pressure. And I, it's my opinion that he died of a heart attack in that bathtub, you know, cause he had continued to drink, but I never saw him do drugs. I never saw him smoke a joint, do cocaine or any of that. So, well, I guess my question is, is that Presley and, and other people certainly did succumb to whether alcoholism or, or yeah. drugs and, and died. Why do you think you survived. Why do you think you made it? Oh God, I don't know. I got an angel on my shoulder, I guess. Well, when I, uh, I'll tell you, when I did get sober, I followed direction. I did everything they told me to do. And actually I did have one relapse. I was sober for 27 years. I was married to my third husband, David Banks, and we were both sober and we, we had a 20 year marriage when he died of uh, emphysema. And I had a relapse after his death and it didn't last long, but my family came through. I think the reason I survived, you know, from that initial addiction and alcoholism is because I followed direction. I did what people told me to do. I went to meetings. I took other people to meetings. I paid attention. I set a goal for myself, you know, 90 meetings in 90 days is what they say. And I did all that. And um, you know, there's, they have an incredible success rate. And I want people to know, if you're reading my book, that you may recognize yourself in my story or your son or your daughter, maybe a mother or father, maybe somebody, a, a close friend, and you see what's going on with them. Don't be afraid to speak up. Let them know that there's a place for them, that there's help. And, you know, the way my attitude was when people tried to help me was mind your own business. Right. Get out of my life. It's my life. I'll do what I want. And that's absolutely what most addicts and alcoholics will say, because they don't want to give it up. It's this, it's this worm eating in their brain, and it's telling them it's, it's nobody's business but yours. But, you know, thank God I listened. Ultimately, I listened, but I had to get very, very ill before I did that. 
Uh, something I want to touch on, and, and we're pretty PG rated here, so we're not going to ask for the the specific details. No details. No, no, no details. details. We'll keep it nice. And but the, it seems like you had a pretty interesting uh, romantic life. I'm looking here. It looks like you had flings or relationships with people like Bill Murray, John Voight, Richard Dreyfus, Ralph Waite from the Waltons, Chad Edward from Medical Center, and there, there's quite a few folks there. Um, well, maybe Jim, t- listen, <laughs> that's who I worked with. Well, it makes sense. It makes sense. I spent my time with. So let me, uh, I mean, not talking anything out of school or anything, but just some memorable people that you just thought, wow, that's somebody I'll always remember. And and they were something. All of them. All of them. They were fun. They were handsome. They were successful. They wooed me. They won for a temporary time. You know, we had a, we had a great time. I was young. I was single. I was working. You know, I didn't want anything from them. I wasn't looking to be supported or I wasn't, I wasn't with them for a job. I didn't want to get married. I pretty much reflected a lot of the feeling of people my age at that time. You know, it was the 70s, right. you know, and every, you know, it was, it was not that I'm saying it was free love or, you know, I mean, that's what they called it. But it was, we didn't want to be attached anymore wanted to make our own decisions, especially women. Men had been doing it for years. Nobody said, oh, you're being promiscuous to a man. Say it to a woman. But we didn't go for that anymore. You know, we, uh, you know, quite often, you know, my girlfriend would say, oh, you've got to meet this guy. He's terrific. Bill Murray was one of them. I only had a brief fling with Bill and never saw him again. And yet his name pops up all the time. (laughs) Well, I actually was going to mention kind of along those lines, I mean, who is there somebody that, um, who, um, surprised you or, or would surprise the general public? Maybe somebody who had this real kind of staid reputation that they, they love to have fun or the opposite, maybe a funny man or a funny woman, uh, who, who yeah. everybody thought was uh, laughing all the time, but really had a serious side. Who would, what person you would know who would surprise people? Maybe not, I'm not saying in a bad way, but they're just maybe a very different person than when we assume from what we see on the screen. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, one of, one of my favorite guys, and everybody is really surprised when I say this, but Mr. Edwards, uh, Victor French, on the, oh, yes. on, the, on the prairie, Victor and I became very good friends. And, and it happened over, uh, he, his marriage was breaking up. He was distraught. Julie Cobb was a lovely woman, absolutely lovely. I love Julie. They had broken up, um, broken up their marriage. And, you know, I was, I wouldn't call it comforting, Victor, but we became very good friends and had a lot of fun times together. And I don't, I think people would be surprised to know that Miss Beetle and Mr. Edwards <laughs> were getting it on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. And, and another guy who passed way too soon, I mean, right around... I, I think fairly close to the time that Michael Landon did. Ironically, both were on Highway to Heaven together uh, and continued that working relationship. Just another guy who, who passed way too soon. Oh, Victor? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were best friends. And uh, Victor was just a fabulous guy. Everybody loved him. And it was very sad. I mean, when Michael died, oh, my God, we were devastated. It was impossible to imagine that Michael Landon would die. He was so full of life. Remember when he went on the Johnny Carson show? Yes, I remember. Yeah, because, yeah, I remember specifically. I watched that. And you said, what? He can't be. And six months later, he was gone. I knew what was coming because it had just, it had happened to my mother. 
she had pancreatic cancer, drove herself to San Francisco. You know, the doctor said, you're, you've got six months to live. She said, well, screw you. I'm going to live. And she went back to her bridge club and her gardening and everything right up until the week before she died, you know, with tremendous energy. But, you know, it's just, it's so sad when somebody has to die so young like that and has so much to give. Michael just gave and gave and gave. You know, you've been through a lot. I mean, you've seen a lot. You've experienced a lot. Much of it good, some of it not so good. What would you say to a young actor or actress out there coming up in the business? Any uh, words of uh, wisdom? Oh, gosh, just uh, do it if you have to do it. I mean, if you have to become an actor, do it all the way and whatever it takes. Now, you know, for at least uh, 17, 18 years of my acting career, I kept a full-time job at an office. I was working at a place called Lantana. I went to work every day in the office. Granted, it was a production facility, but still, I would save up my vacation time when I would get an acting job, like Tremors, the movie Tremors with Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. I saved up my vacation days, went off and did a movie. The next day, I was back at the desk. I kept a job, and there's nothing wrong with being a waiter or going into real estate or something, whatever you have to do to keep your acting going. Just do it if you have to do it. But if you think it's going to be easy, you know what? Go home because it's not easy. You have to have stamina. You have to have, I don't know what you call it, belief in in yourself. I never doubted that I would have a career. Once I started, it was just in the cards. That's what I was. I was an actress. And I never, never thought about going home. Well, I got to tell you, it's a great story. And if you're interested in Hollywood of the 60s and the 70s and heck up into today and still active with with, with Twin Peaks, I think you should check out this book. So where can people find the book, Charlotte? You can buy it on Amazon called Little House in the Hollywood Hills, A Bad Girl's Guide to Becoming Miss Beetle, Mary X and Me by me, Charlotte Stewart. And Andy Dembski is my writing partner. Gosh, you can friend me on Facebook. I, I think I still have some friend slots left. I'm filled up pretty quick. But yeah, I'll write back to you at Amazon.com. And I just finished the audio book. The audio book oh, cool. will be out very soon. And you'll be able to get that on Amazon as well. That Probably awesome. about maybe six weeks from now, it'll be done. Well, I highly recommend it. And Charlotte Stewart, you've been an absolute delight. We thank you for joining us on TV You Grew Up With. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. And thank you for tuning in to TV you grew up with. We certainly appreciate it. Stay tuned. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. 